Good afternoon, Risen Hope, and good morning to those of you who are watching online, or perhaps even afternoon if you don't get to it tomorrow morning. That's totally fine, too. Um, I'm JT Kimball, and uh, it's my privilege to be sharing God's Word with you today. Uh, you may have heard Jeremy mention several times, I'm not your usual speaker, if this is among your first times here or watching, but I am filling in for him, as well as several of us have, for the last month. Um, let us pray before we get started. Lord in heaven, thank you so much for all that you have been doing in our lives and the lives of the congregation and what you're doing there, as we just heard in Southeast Asia. It's amazing. You are so good, and your, your son and your truth is so precious to us, God, and I pray that that would be even more true today after we work through your word. I pray that you would take away anything we have that's hardening our heart right now or anything that's kind of blinding us. I pray that you would get me out of the way and that um, this time would just be all about your word and your truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Uh, it is uh, definitely fitting that we heard from Steve and Debbie today. I, th I think that uh, that was a great lead-in uh, to today's sermon topic, which is as we're uh, continuing through our series, which is the Pillars of Risen Hope. Uh, today we're talking about the fourth of our fundamental truths of the church, which is loving where you live, which is something that, uh, as Steve and Debbie talked about, God has placed uh, on their hearts. And the things they are doing to love the people that they live with uh, are just a wonderful example for what that looks like and why that's, why that's an important pillar of the church. And so we go through these pillars each and every year. You may remember if you've been around two years ago, we walked through each of the four pillars in, the, um, in Jesus's uh, parables. Last year, we went through them in the prophets, and this year, we're going through them in the Psalms, God's songbook. And so we've heard Jacob talk to us about the centrality of Christ. Jeremy taught us about the sufficiency of scripture. And um, Nikki walked, wonderfully walked us through last week what it meant to be a family of faith. This takes us to the final pillar today, which is love where you live. And in many ways, this pillar is the uh, natural answer to the question that you may ask about after learning about the first three pillars, that if Christ is our everything, the Bible is God's living word, and we've been adopted into God's family, what does that mean for our everyday lives? And it means that we're to embody his love, his joy, and his grace everywhere that he's placed us, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces, and at our schools. We are to love those made in his image, love those that are made in his image that God has placed in our lives. But again, hearing it from me is not nearly as interesting, important, or as impactful as hearing it directly from God himself. So let's do that. We're going to be looking at two different Psalms today, uh, Psalm 8 and Psalm 112, and we're starting with Psalm 8. So could you please open your Bibles to that Psalm and read with me? This Psalm is a Psalm of praise from David, and it's all about God's power and sovereignty, which is a crucial foundation for the pillar of loving where you live. So starting in verse 1 of that psalm, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place? What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, 
the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And um, just ponder on that. Truly, truly he is majestic. It says here that he set the moon and the stars in their place, that they're the work of his fingers. Um, the, the unending, incomprehensible universe. And for me, I really mean incomprehensible. I don't know if this is an exercise you all have done, but just thinking about the size of our solar system, our galaxy, the universe, how like the nearest star in our galaxy, not even leaving that, the nearest star in our galaxy is four and a quarter light years away. Traveling at the speed of light, it takes over four years to get there. If we were to try to travel there with the best technology, it would take lifetimes, lifetimes to get there. And that's, that's to the closest single star in the sky. I, I can't imagine, I, it's, it's just too much for my brain to handle to think about how large the universe is. Yet, God placed all of these things there with his fingers. He is bigger than all of it. It's not too big for him. And it's just, um, it's amazing to me. And so God has set all the celestial bodies in their place. Yet, we see that he still cares for us. Those of us who are infinitely small compared to the universe, let alone God, who is bigger than all that. David expresses this starting in verse 4 of that psalm. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So what are we that God is mindful of us, which is, you know, just a wonderful acknowledgement of how blessed we are to have a father in heaven who cares and loves for us. But not only that, he has crowned us with glory and honor. So not only are we you know, infinitesimally small in comparison to all that God has created, but he has chosen us to crown us with glory and honor as, as members of this family of faith, which is just astounding and amazing. In Acts 17, Paul takes this idea of God being the creator of the universe and caring about us, and he's debating the intellectuals in Athens, and he builds on this truth starting in verse 24 of Acts 17. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So our God, who's created the whole universe, has determined allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling place. In other words, he has chosen the precise time and place that we would live. It's not an accident that you are here at this church or in your job or in your neighborhood. And why has he done this? Paul answers this in verse 27. It's so that we should seek God and feel our way toward him and find him. We are all exactly where we are so that we can better know our father in heaven. In his wisdom, he's decided this is precisely where you belong. And I know that perhaps your house your neighborhood, your job, your family or school situation may not be ideal in your mind or what you had dreamt or hoped for. But know that in God's sovereignty and in his power, this is where he has placed you. Um, you are precisely where he wants you to be, whether that's Kingsgate or Queensgate, Kirkland, Bothell, Woodenville, Tacoma, or Southeast Asia. You are exactly where he wanted you to be. This is what he has planned for you. And so 
God is sovereign and he's put all things in their place, including you. What does he desire from us in these places that he's put us? And verses six through eight of that psalm tell us more um, and give us a hint as to what God, God desires from us. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So he's made us rulers and stewards over his creation. And as he is a righteous and a holy God, one whose name is majestic to proclaim over all the earth, he desires us to be good stewards of his creation. And so what does that mean? What are his expectations for righteous ruling and stewarding of his creation? Um, our Father in heaven graciously provides us answers all throughout the Bible, but he provides some answers to this in Psalm 112. So if you could please turn your Bibles to that one as well. And starting in verse 5 and continuing through verse 9 of Psalm 112, we see the psalmist describing some aspects in the life of a righteous person. The psalmist writes, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. So first I want to call out a truth that's found in verses 6 and 7, something that is explicitly called out about righteous people, and that is that they are anchored in God. A righteous person trusts in the Lord and will not be moved. They are not afraid of bad news. And there are lots of major and minor inconveniences in this life. To live on this earth is um, to experience frustration and angst and pain. Um, it just, it's just part of being here. Yet, the righteous women and men in this world are not moved or shaken by this. Their faith is deeply rooted in our Heavenly Father, and their hearts are steady. So what's the fruit of this righteous person's life? There are several marks we see um, in this psalm. We see that they deal generously, that they distribute freely, they conduct their affairs with justice, and they give to the poor. And this is not an extensive list of righteous attributes that the whole of, the whole of God's word provides us with that. But um, it does give a pretty clear picture of what God's, how God expects us to steward his creation with hearts of generosity, desiring just outcomes for all those around us, especially the poor. And so about, about six years ago um, was a time of immense spiritual growth in my life. You know, in general, it's kind of this gradual upslope, but I've had a couple moments where things happened and it was just phew, took off like a rocket ship and the scales, you know, multiple scales fell from my eyes, so to say. Um, it was really transformative and I'm really grateful for the things that happened, the promptings that were put in my heart, the listening to the spirits as, as we heard about there, and the men who really shepherded me and discipled me through that time. And uh, I was reading a series of books on faith and work, meaning like my vocation, my workplace, how does that integrate with my faith? And um, of the books that I read, there was one named Kingdom Calling by Amy Sherman. And this one was the most impactful in my life, the ones I read. And early on in the book, um, the author, Miss Sherman, references Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10. 
And uh, that verse in the ESV states, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. Or in the translation of the book, I believe it said, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. So there's this idea that when something positive happens in the life of a righteous person, there is rejoicing in the community or the city. And I know that uh, Proverbs are patterns, not promises. The statements are not strictly true all the time, but are generally true and wise teaching. So, but with that ca caveat said, I still find this to be an extremely powerful statement that the righteous person must be living their life in such a way that when something positive happens to them, it causes the whole city to rejoice. Like I imagine, like who in your life, if they experience something positive, would you celebrate from the bottom of your heart? Um, I'm a sports fan, so imagine like your team scores a touchdown, and you're like, yes, yes, you know, that kind of celebrating. Who in your life would you, would you celebrate that way if something positive happened in their life? And I, I really think that's what this verse is getting at when it says that. I'm gonna give a hypothetical situation just to kind of paint a fuller picture here. And um, because he's here, I'm, I'm gonna, in my house, I'm gonna pick on David Fields, um, our brother in Christ. Um, so just imagine that word got out that David Fields received a promotion at his job. And all around Kingsgate, the families of Robert Frost, which David Fields lives right next door to, were on the streets honking their horns and celebrating because they heard that something awesome happened to David. Why would they do that? They would do that because they know that David is truly a righteous and selfless man, and whatever good he experienced would, would go forth and they would be experienced in their lives. That's why this is such a powerful idea for me. And it's really one of the reasons that Mrs. Sherman's book has stuck with me all these years. Just that idea of the overflowing of the love, joy, peace, mercy, and any other blessings or type of prosperity into the lives of those around the righteous people. There's a biblical scholar named Bruce K. Waltke who spent 25 years working on a commentary for the book of Proverbs. And um, in his book, after 25 years, he describes the righteous and wicked in this one sentence. He says that the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, while the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And so when God describes a righteous person in the Bible, whether it's in Job or the Psalms or in the Gospels, he's describing someone whose heart has been softened and is being led by the Spirit. The fruit in this person's life is evident, completely clear. They are willing to regularly disadvantage their own situation in order to help somebody else out. Their life is marked by the lifting up of others emotionally, spiritually, physically, and financially. This is why the whole city would rejoice when the righteous person prospers, because they know it means they would prosper as well. And you contrast that with a wicked person, they ensure their advantage to the detriment of others. It's about putting themselves first and forgetting the two greatest commands, to love the Lord their God and to love others as themselves. Um, but I do want to pause here briefly and make something very clear that we cannot earn our salvation through these good works. That's not what righteousness is about. Um, that's not the gospel, just being nice to others. All that's required is faith in Jesus Christ, that he died as just punishment for our sins and was resurrected, defeating death. Uh, the righteous behavior I've been speaking about is simply born out of that faith. It is a byproduct of that faith. And so I want to make that clear and ensure there's no confusion there. Recapping what we've talked about so far, we know that God is sovereign and powerful over all things, the whole universe, and he's placed us precisely where he wants us to be. 
And secondly, that in our places where he's placed us, he desires us to live righteously, loving him and loving others. So what does Jesus teach on loving where we live? In Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16, Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking as part of that. And um, he tells us that we're to be salt and light for those around us. He says, starting in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And I actually want to pause in the middle of this real quick. Every time I read that sentence, that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, I can't help but think of Kingsgate, which is like the highest point on this part of the east side. It's, like, it's downhill to Woodenville, downhill to Redmond, downhill to Kirkland, downhill to Bothell. Everywhere you go is downhill from Kingsgate. We are a city set on a hill. And so I always just imagine how amazing would it be if we were that beacon of light on this hill for the east side. If this was a place that was literally a shining example that's marked by Christians living righteously and loving those in their community. It's somewhere that people could talk about, like something special is happening there. It is truly shining on the hilltop. So maybe that imagery will not be in your mind when you read that, but I can't read this without thinking about that as I've been a resident here in Kingsgate for about 11 years, I think now. Um, But continuing on to Jesus' words, which are better than mine, uh, verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is, to your Father who is in heaven. So the joy of God and his grace and mercy will be visible to everyone and tangible to everyone we interact with. Um, they'll be seasoning our lives, and this will be noticeably different from those people around us. In another section of the Sermon on the Mount, this time in Luke uh, chapter 6, verses 27 through 32, Jesus explains how we will be different from the world. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. So even the world, even your enemies, love those who love them. Republicans love Republicans. Democrats love Democrats. On the internet, we like, we favor it, we retweet, we join communities with people who agree with us, and we leave communities if people disagree with us, or we ignore or block or argue people who don't. But that's not the Christian behavior. That's not loving your enemies. Like, what would a Christian do? A Christian would perhaps love, care for, and proactively reach out to someone like your transsexual neighbor. Or we might pray for and despise, or not pray for and not despise, sorry, our multimillionaire neighbor who lives next door to us. We would bring meals and show care for the person who has a giant political sign in their yard, even if that sign makes us hurt or angry on the inside because we love them. And it's easy for us to be happy with those who agree with us. Uh, To give another example, like I find it very easy to love Jeremy. Jeremy loves Jesus. He works in tech just like I do. He's bald like me. Like, (laughs) um, he, He has similar views on what the gospel means for engaging culture. He loves me. So how does that make me different from anyone else if we love each other? It doesn't. Jesus tells us that even sinners love those who love them. 
The mark of a Christian is that we love those who hate us. And this is not easy. It, but it's precisely what is prescribed by Jesus, our Savior and King. And he's given us all that we need for this, all the strength and godliness required to accomplish this. Jesus' brother James tells us how important it is that we live out these teachings. James 1, verses 22 through 27, tell us that our faith is not theoretical, but is practical and real. James writes, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I want to call your attention to three things um, in particular in these verses. Um, especially as we think about loving where you live and what this means, you know, being a righteous person in your community. One is that if you read God's word and you do not do what it says, you are like someone who cannot remember what you look like, even after staring at yourself intently in a mirror. And so can you imagine if you met someone where you gave them 10 pictures and you said, pick out yourself, and they had no clue who that, who that was? That's, at least in my life, that's something I've never met anyone who would, who would be in that situation. We're all selfish, we know exactly what we look like. We look at ourselves in the mirror. We, we care about our appearance. Yet, if we read God's word and we see something in here and we don't do what it says, we're just like someone who lacks the capacity to look at themselves in the mirror and remember what they look like. Second, um, James, another thing here that I want to pull out from this verse in James is that if you think you're a Christian, but you don't control your tongue and you deceive yourself and rationalize your actions as being Christian, your religion is worthless. Um, and so what does it mean to deceive your heart? It's, it's to rationalize any non-biblical behavior as righteous or perhaps even minimize or glorify a sin. There are many things across this country that have been bundled up under the banner of Christianity that are not in and of themselves from the Bible. Um, you know, and perhaps this is even happening in our community, but they could be things that are views on economic policy or how to the proper schooling methods or parenting methods or how to deal with the environment or different political things. Many of us have deceived ourselves into thinking some of these things are virtuous and they're, they're not virtuous. The things that are virtuous are the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. These things will help you love your neighbors. Those other things won't help you love your neighbors, so don't cling to them. Third is that true religion is to care for the neediest in society and keeping yourself unstained from the world. The righteous life is marked both by a focus on Christ and all that is good, sacrificing your time, money, and comfort to care for those who are most vulnerable. God is sovereign over everything. Christ is our treasure, and his word is true. So let's live lives worthy of our calling, striving for righteousness, seeking to love where we live. Uh, I wanted to finish this up by providing some ways that you can love where you live. Any of you that have known me or studied the Bible with me, I have a tendency to just immediately go to 
practical application. What does this mean for my life? And so if you'll humor me a bit, um, I would actually want to ask that you could take out your phone or a notebook, some way to take notes. I have a small assignment for you. Um, whatever would be the best way for you to do that. I'm going to give a list of eight different ways that you can consider loving where you live. Um, and I would like to ask that you choose two things for you or your family or your household to consider doing here. And this is not an exhaustive list. I don't own, you know, I'm, I'm not the one to define what is the best way to love where you live, but I want to give you ideas in case you needed some. And uh, this is for adults and for children. It applies to Liam Patnode just as much as to Jeremy Patnode. Uh, so again, this is not an exhaustive list, but here's eight different ways I want to suggest, and I would, I would ask that you write down two of them. First, uh, do all your neighbors know your name and your contact information, and do you know theirs? You can't love someone if you've never met them, and how can you hope for them to receive the gospel if they have no clue who you are? Um, it's a small sacrifice to bake some cookies or buy some cookies if that's not appropriate because of COVID, but write down your name, your phone number, your email, and ring a neighbor's doorbell. Second, have you considered reaching out to your local elementary school to see what needs are there? There is no better representation of your community than the local school. They are really a cross-section of all the people that live there. Um, and that's tr especially true here in Kingsgate, where we have low-income housing right next to $1.5 million houses, and all those kids attend the elementary school. You truly get a cross-section of the community. Um, and Robert Frost and John Muir, the two elementary schools here in Kingsgate, are the lowest-income elementary schools in all of Lake Washington School District. Um, so I can't comment on the best way for your local schools, as I only know about Muir, Frost, and Kamiakin, our middle school. But from talking with them, they need help with, many of the families there need help with student mentoring. They have programs for you to spend, adults to spend time with children, investing in them. They need food. Many of these families cannot afford to get meals to their children every day of the week, all three meals. They also need school supplies, clothing, diapers, or even childcare is a thing, especially during time of COVID, they're really struggling with childcare for some of these families. Third suggestion, start a community Bible study. Find a small handful of neighbors and meet weekly. Just read the Bible and care for each other. Um, and I know that this is a scary suggestion, but I wanted to give you something that might encourage you. Uh, Pew Research put out a study in the last one to two years where they did a survey of spirituality in America and religion in America. And it was really fascinating. I spent hours and hours diving into the data because I'm that kind of guy and I enjoyed it. But it was really interesting across the spectrum of religion from the most devoutly religious to those who were extremely um, atheistic, on that spectrum, until you got to the most hardcore atheists, most of those people prayed at least once a month. It was even the agnostics or the people who were kind of new or new age religion. There was this aspect of prayer being an active component of their life at least one time a month. And that was, to me, really encouraging because it showed me that there's a spiritual curiosity that exists in many people that is possibly, you know, not made a public part of life or not, or kind of suppressed. But it was encouraging to me to know I can be less afraid when reaching out to people because there likely is a real curiosity there. Fourth point, go on a community prayer walk. One of the ways that we are told to love people is to pray for them. And so walk around your neighborhood, pray for the people by name that you know, pray for the homes that you don't know, pray for somebody you see, pray for the businesses that you see. This is a, a good way to, to love and care for the people in your neighborhood. Fifth, adopt a local restaurant. So choose a restaurant, hopefully like a small business, a, you know, something that's not a giant chain, although you could do that too if that's what's fitting for your neighborhood. Um, visit it regularly, get to know the staff or the owner's names. Tip generously. Like, I believe, like, you know, a good tip is 20%. Tip 40% every time you go there. And then ask them how they're doing. Get to know their names. It's not about the food. It's about the relationships and what you build with them. Number six, 
pay attention to what's happening in your local city council meetings um, and see how you can advocate for your community. I'm gonna give an example. I think that direction is 132nd Square Park, which is really our community's park. And across the street from that is Kirkland Heights, which I've mentioned previously, which is a low-income uh, housing community. The kids who grew up in Kirkland Heights, 132nd Square Park is effectively their backyard. They don't have backyards, so they spend time playing there. And due to a drainage issue, that whole park is being redone over the next year or two. They're tearing it all out, new playgrounds, new fields, and everything. And uh, turns out that when they were doing this, they had never talked to anybody from that community at all about what their needs were. And it took people who were more connected and more affluent telling the city about this for something to happen. And guess what? The city went, hosted an event at the community center at Kirkland Heights, had tens of people there um, talking to them and giving feedback, and they incorporated that feedback into the things they were thinking about for the park. But it took people being engaged and thinking about their um, neighbors who were in need for that to happen. And uh, number eight, last one I have suggested. Uh, join or start a Bible study or Christian group at your job. I work at Microsoft, and so there's a group of Christians, actually like a, almost, almost 200 of us on an email group, group, that meet every Tuesday from noon to one for a time of prayer and singing. You know, only 20 or 30 of us meet every week, but we kind of support each other in email and attend this. And so we, sometimes we play a guitar, sometimes we just sing via YouTube, and we have someone lead us in Bible study. And so I'm connected to a group of Christians that way. There's also every Wednesday, a um, group of Microsofties who pray for our company. It's just literally an hour-long time of prayer every Wednesday to pray for the company because God's put it on their heart to love where they work and pray that the gospel could shine in Microsoft and it could, um, you know, just there could really be a transformation and a revival in the company in a way that is unexpected. And you know, I know there's many other smaller Bible studies, and not everyone works at a giant company like I do. And so there's, you know, smaller things you can do, but even just a group of Christians in your workplace. You know that they're there. You can pray for, support, love each other, and um, care for your uh, coworkers as well. So that's eight ideas for how you can love where you live. I'm sure that you all have some great ideas as well. And frankly, I would love to hear them. Um, oh, you know what? I skipped one. My apologies. Sorry, that was seven ideas. Um, I went from six to eight. The seventh, which I realized I didn't say, which in many ways the closest, nearest, and dearest to my heart, is to ask you to join God Loves Kingsgate. God of Kingsgate is a cross-church ministry that's been started for the purpose of loving all the people in Kingsgate. So there's eight churches here in Kingsgate, and the idea is that all the Christians, whether they go to the one churches here in Kingsgate or elsewhere, would be working together to love where we live, caring for all the businesses and all the people in Kingsgate. We have an email list which you can join. We have Facebook, Instagram pages. We have a website. And we have multiple uh, events each and every month. We actually just sponsored two free days of laundry at Eastside Maytag Laundry, and that, was, that event greatly exceeded my expectations. It was really, really cool. So if you have any questions on that, you can speak to myself. Uh, you know, I'm JT, and I help lead that. But there are, Jacob or David or Jeremy would also be able to point you in the right direction. So now it's eight ideas. My apologies for skipping that one. Um, there are probably other, some other good ideas, and I would love to hear them, especially if you want to talk to me about them in the context of God Loves Kingsgate. I would love to integrate some of those ideas. Like the free laundry day is the kind of creative idea I don't think we would have thought of if it weren't for COVID. Uh, and so I, I, I love trying to figure out ways that we can love our community. So loving where you live is not always easy. It is easiest to simply love ourselves, but that is not what Christ did at all. When he helped others, he did so holistically. He met their spiritual needs, and he met their worldly needs. It was not a myopic ministry or you know, tunnel vision, but a complete one. He knew that by helping others in all areas of their lives, he would best glorify his Father in heaven. And that's how we can point people to Jesus, by living lives marked by the joy of God and by the light of the gospel, sharing Christ's love with them. 
It's written, um, as it is written in 1 John 3.18, which is a book that's all about walking in the light. John writes, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So let's finish by going back to Psalm 8, and let's reflect on God's glory and majesty. We do these things because he is the creator of the universe. This is why we love where we live, because he first loved us and put us precisely where we are so that we could show grace and mercy to all those that he has placed in our lives. If you long to know our Heavenly Father more deeply, uh, please join us in taking part in communion in the next song. There's some little things you can grab there back in the entryway or in your own home. Um, we've done it as well. When we ran out of grape juice, we used orange juice. We think God understood our hearts. So I encourage you, those of you watching as well, to do that. Um, so meditate on his glory and goodness and how that overflows into our community. Here's Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. Um, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you, you are majestic. To know majesty is to know you, God. And I pray that we, as Risen Hope, and as Kingsgate, and whatever communities we are in, you could help us to make your majesty known across the community because it is deeply impressed in our heart. It is just so true mentally and emotionally and spiritually to us that we know that you are our glorious, loving, wonderful creator. And because of that, your joy, your mercy, your love, and your grace overflows into the lives of our neighbors and our coworkers and our family, God. I pray that you would really help us understand that you have called us to love where you live and you would give us the strength and the wisdom to truly love where we live in a way that points others to you and glorifies you. Thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. In his name we ask.